to teach them into their lives. And so what we're doing now is we're starting a series. Last week was our first week on the Lord's Prayer. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me. We're actually going to be in Psalm 63 this morning. But we're looking at the Lord's Prayer, and the Lord's Prayer is probably the series of words that have been repeated more than any other words in human history. And you know, it's simple enough that a child can, can memorize it in minutes. Um, you can repeat it slowly in less than a minute. And yet it's, it's powerful enough that it can become like a North Star for, for your soul and for your life. It can reorient you when your desires get off track. It can refocus you when you get distracted. It can encourage you when you get discouraged. We have four kids and our third child is three and right now it's not uncommon to see him um, climbing on the back of the couch, jumping off, going wearing a blanket and only underwear. And uh, he's the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man who's ridding the world of dastardly villains. And sometimes I'll say, um, you know, I appreciate that you're making the neighborhood safe so we can, people can walk their dog and ladies can cross the street. But um, what you should be doing right now is you should be putting up the blocks. You should be helping your sisters clean their room. You should be. Uh, that's not necessarily what you should be doing at this moment. And one of the things the Lord's Prayer can be for us is this reorienting reminder when we get so distracted or so discouraged or so disoriented, this is what I should be doing right now. This is who I should be right now. And the way it's structured is it's a simple structure that can lay the groundwork for who we want to be as Christians and who we want to be as a church. And the Lord lays it out where two basic categories of this needs to be your commitments. Your commitments need to be God-centered. It's your name, your kingdom, your will. We're God-centered in our commitments. This is what we love, what we long for. We live long for His name, His kingdom, His will. And then the culture that we create, the world we live in, um, we want to create a culture that's grace-saturated. It's marked by hospitality. We have our bread where we're welcoming people to our table and we're eating together. But it's also marked by relational reconciliation. We're committed to receiving forgiveness and then giving forgiveness. And then we're committed to enduring. Lead us not in temptation. Deliver us from evil so that we endure. So it gives us these two categories that we want to be as a church. A church that's God-centered in our commitments, grace-saturated in our culture. And the Lord's Prayer is the simple, steady, repeated reminder to work those things into our hearts. And so what we're going to look at this morning is the very first petition. Because the first petition is, Hallowed be thy name. Or your name be made holy. Hallowed be thy name. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to set as the first petition. He said, this is your top priority. And so there could be a thousand things that you could do in life. Um, but if you miss this, you've missed the most important thing. Or there could be a thousand things you don't ever get to do in life, but if you get this, you've got the most important thing. This is the first petition because it's the first priority. And so I was thinking, how do you, where should we go to help teach us what does it mean to hallow his name? 
Because really this is about worship. So for a church, it's about worship. Our first priority is to worship, to honor and hallow his name. Let's think just for a second about what those two words mean, because that might not be a term that you're familiar with. But hallow just is an, is an old, uh, you know, pre-Victorian word for honor. Honor his name. Glorify his name. Treat it as holy. I love this phrase from John Calvin. He says, to hallow God's name means to have your entire heart captivated by wonderment for God. So you hallow his name by having a heart that's captivated by wonder for who God is. And then notice it's hallow his name. So name in the Bible, um, all that we know about who God is and what he has done is conveyed to us in the Bible through his name. See, in ancient cultures, especially in the biblical world, your name was really the distinguishing mark that kind of defined who you are, more so than in, in our world. But even in our world, if somebody like mispronounces or garbles your name, there's still kind of like this low level of, mm. you know, one of the small areas that brings Cynthia delight and enjoyment in life is she always teases me because of the way I, well, don't pronounce my vowels correctly. And so whenever we go to a restaurant where they ask, can I have a name for the order? It's always like, all right, here it goes. What are they going to call him? Because you wouldn't think that Ben is a very hard name to understand. But inevitably, I say Ben, and for some reason, it sounds plain to me, but nobody hears it as Ben, and they always say, oh, Bill or Dan or some other name. And then she'll just kind of smirk and laugh. Yep, Dan, I got coffee for Dan. Who's that? That's mine. And, uh, even on the kind of the low level, when somebody doesn't quite get your name right, there's a sense of, huh, almost, I mean, it's not like you feel violated or anything like that, but there is a sense that you're not known. And so what the Lord's name is so much more than just how he's to be referenced. In the Bible, his name designates who he is and what he does. You see some of the honor given to Adam when he names all of the animals because the meaning, their identity is wrapped up in their name. And then one of the big things in the Bible to often tell you somebody's name and then give them meaning about who they are. So just in Genesis, you can see what Eve and Cain and Seth and Noah and Babel and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau, they're, who they are is described by their name. And then you get it with Moses and even Jesus. He's, you shall call his name Jesus because... He will save his people from, his sin, uh, from their sins. That's what he's going to do. And you can see uh, in the Bible, one of the most significant things that can happen to a person is when God renames them. You were Abram, but now you are Abraham. You were Sarai, now you are Sarah. He renames uh, people. You were... Cephas, but I call you Peter, or you're, you're now this rock. Or, uh, or even think about Naomi. You know, she says, you called me Naomi, but call me that no longer. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because she's, she's turning her name in another direction. And the same is true about, about God. There's this infinite link between his name and his person. So all throughout the Bible, you glorify his name. His name has honor. His name has power. There's holiness to the name. His name is great. It's holy. It's awesome. It's a refuge. It's a strong tower because there's a connection between the name and the person. So to sum it up, there's no higher calling or higher good or higher goal 
than to honor his name. But then the question becomes, all right, how do you do it? So I think Psalm 63 is a beautiful psalm that can actually give us kind of the three steps to honoring his name or hallowing his name. If you're going to hallow his name, you need... um, You need, in essence, to desire his name, experience him, and then trust him. And so let's kind of walk through those three things. And what we're going to see is if you're going to really hallow his name, you have to be, it's motivated by desire. So there's a desiring of who he is. And then if you're really going to hallow his name, it's actually experienced as you encounter him. So you experience who he is. And then to truly hallow his name ends in trusting who he is, and resting. So let's walk through each of those together. So let's look first uh, in Psalm 63. uh, To hallow his name is motivated by desire. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So this is Psalm 63. It was written as a Psalm of David. He wrote it. It says the little heading uh, gives you the, the title, the heading, the situation. It was when he was in the wilderness. And there's two times in his life where it could have been. In verse 11, we'll get to it in a minute, where it says the king, he's referring to himself, but the king will rejoice in the Lord. So it's probably uh, the time when he was, he was actually the king and was in the wilderness fleeing from Absalom. So it was one of his sons who was uh, seeking to uh, a coup to overthrow David's government and uh, place himself on the throne. And David was running in the wilderness for his life. And this is one of the beautiful uh, psalms that flow out of that time in the wilderness. And it is interesting how many of the most beautiful and powerful psalms in David's life flow out of times in the wilderness. And it's also intriguing in Paul, some of the, his, his most exalted kind of rhetoric happens when he's writing in the prison. And it's one of the things we'll see in a second, just the, the reality of the theme of the wilderness. But first, let's notice, if you're going to really hallow God's name, it's motivated by desire. Do you feel the desire that he has for him? You are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirst, my flesh faints for you. His whole body, his whole being, soul, the spiritual aspect of who he is, flesh, the physical aspect, both of them long for him. He desires him. But notice here the two things that motivate the desire or what generate it or what propel it. First, it's the barrenness of the world and then the beauty of worship. So he's motivated by the barrenness of the world. David's on the run. He's in the wilderness. He's in the desert. And as he's in a physical, literal, actual desert, it's reminding him of a spiritual Reality that just as he's physically thirsty, he's spiritually thirsty. And it's this physical reality kind of opens up the door that causes him to become awakened to his spiritual reality. A physical need opens up the door so he then recognizes he has a spiritual need. And it's that theme of the wilderness. How often it's in the wilderness that we learn these things. That's one of the major themes in the Bible. You know, in in many ways, the wilderness is the worldly detox center for us, for God's people. 
It's kind of where we have to go to get the pollutants of the world fleshed out of our heart, mind, and soul. And it's here that he's going to recognize these things. I saw it somewhere on social media. I saw the, I don't know where it was, but it was a middle school sign for welcome back to school. And it said, Fortnite detox starts Monday morning. (laughs) So I don't know if this is a wilderness or not, but sometimes you have to go places to get things detoxed out of you. And that's the the wilderness. The wilderness is that for God's people. It's where that um, they discover what's always been true. It's just things of this world have hid it from them, but they discover their utter dependency on who he is. That if you don't come through for me, we don't survive. And one of the realities is you will learn that this world is a wilderness. You will either, it's kind of like you can do this the hard way or the easy way, but you're going to learn it either way. But you'll learn that the world is a wilderness, that there's, there's hopes and dreams and desires you have that cannot be met in this world. And it's often on the other side of attaining them that we realize that. You know, C.S. Lewis has a beautiful phrase where he says, if you come to realize that there's certain desires in you that nothing in this world can meet, maybe it's because you were made for another world. And that's what the wilderness does. It's a great gift to us because it teaches us what's ultimately true. It's in the wilderness that he recognizes not only do I physically thirst, but I spiritually thirst and only God can satisfy that. And one of the great things we can do for our lives is kind of train ourselves in Uh, do wilderness preparation before we get thrust into it. Because all of you, if you're over 12, you know that at some point life is going to thrust you into the wilderness. And it's going to hit you. It'll hit you by a doctor's report you didn't expect. It'll hit you by a pink slip you didn't expect. It'll hit you by a call from the hospital that you didn't expect. You'll get thrust into it. And one of the things is when you're not in it, there's things you can do to train yourself to prepare for it. Somebody recently asked me, and said, why do Catholics eat fish on Friday? And um, I started laughing because there's actually a really good kind of reason. It's not just Catholics, but um, it didn't start here, but in like the 350s, John Chrysostom, who was the bishop of uh, Constantinople, who at the time was one of the richest cities in the world, uh, one of the things they started doing is they started fasting. So their church started fasting on Friday, and then they would take the money they would normally spend on food on that day, and they would put it kind of in a pot and use it to distribute and help help the poor. And that's when it started the tradition, or that's not where it started, but that's how it kind of got expanded of fasting on Friday. But one of the things John is doing is helping people. That's in essence training for the wilderness before you're in it. And maybe there's something in your life you need to intentionally spend some time to fast from or Sabbath from or intentionally remove for a small period to train yourself. So when it's taken away, you'll be able to survive. But the barrenness of the world motivates his desire for God. But then the next thing that does is not just barrenness that motivates, it's the beauty of worship. You hear the worship language, look at verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. 
That's worship language in David's world. David, at this point in his life, is, is fulfilling his great task that the Lord had to bring the renovation to public worship. He brought music and celebration. There's historical development to how and why we do worship, and he's bringing uh, musical celebration to the Lord's worship, and he's thinking about the beauty and the power. He says, I've beheld you when I'm with God's people, and we're singing your praise, and we're walking through the steps the liturgical steps of worship, I am celebrating. That's where I've found life. And for him, the, the, the most bitter pill to swallow as he's cast out, as he's no longer with God's people in regular worship. You can also get a feel for that in verse 5. Notice, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Now, what's David talking about there? Now, this is an interesting phrase because... Um, some of you know how much I love meat, so I love this phrase. But uh, we went to Ethiopia with the med students, and uh, Scott and August Walker were on the trip. And we were, you know, Scott's, if you haven't met Scott, he's a country boy from Tennessee. I'm a country boy from Georgia. We kind of hit it off. And when we travel places, you know, foreign places, sometimes the diet's hard on us. And about five days in, he wistfully was looking up into the sky and said, what I would not give right now for a Five Guys burger. <laughs> And something deep in my soul resonated with that. And like everything, like I started salivating and said, oh, I, as soon as we land in America, I am going straight to five guys. And, and like something in me longed for that greasy meat. And luckily we were with a bunch of doctors who said, don't do that because you'll, it, it, trust me, it'll be worse for you. So we waited three or four days and then got it. And, um, but what David is doing, that he's not sitting in the wilderness thinking, oh, I wouldn't give anything for meat. I just want a steak. When he looks in verse five, he says, my soul be satisfied. And it's with the fat of the fat. I want the fat of the fat. What he's actually, that's a reference to worship. Because the way worship worked in his world, there was a, a pattern set up in Sinai, the Levitical pattern, which is actually the basic, the pattern how we structure our worship here. But the pattern is there's a movement of three sacrifices. The first sacrifice was a sacrifice of atonement because you come into the Lord's presence and you can't just come in. You need a sacrifice of atonement to make way. A way is now open so you enter into his presence. The second sacrifice is a sacrifice of ascension where you ascend up into his presence. So all worship is viewed as a hike up a mountain. So it's a journey. You're a worshiper and you go up the mountain to meet with the living Lord. And so the next one takes you up into his presence. And the third one is the sacrifice of fellowship where you then feast together and you sacrifice the meat. The Lord gets the fat portion. You get the other portion and you celebrate together. And what this is a reference to is that moment in worship where we celebrate together as we feast at his table. And kind of in the new covenant, that's all been transformed. And so we kind of have that same progression in our worship where we come to the table, we feast from his word, we come to the table and we remind ourselves of the promises that he came and when he's coming. But what David is referencing, he's not just saying, oh, I'd give anything for a burger. He's talking about that moment where you enter into the Lord's presence and you know you are having fellowship with him. You hear his voice, you have fellowship around his table. It's actually the beauty of worship is the thing that he really desires. But here's the key to this first section. If you're really going to desire God, you actually can't praise him until you learn to properly appraise him. 
You can't praise him properly until you learn to accurately appraise him. Notice what he says in verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life. You know, before you can praise, you have to appraise. And you know what? What does it mean to appraise? Appraise is to assign value to something. Um, like you have an appraiser who's going to come and give an appraisal for your home. You know, how do they do it? They come and they take your home and they compare it to other spec homes in the area, homes with similar specifications, and then they determine whether it's, it's uh, lower or, or, you know, better than those other homes. That's what it means to appraise. And you can't praise him until you properly or accurately appraise him. And David is appraising that his love, it's a key word in the Old Testament, your steadfast love, your chesed, your, your steadfast love, your faithfulness, it's better than life. And so what he's doing, he's actually working courage into his heart. He's saying, here, I'm on the run for my life. I don't know if I'll ever eat again. I don't know if I'll ever drink again. I don't know if I'll ever return to the throne again. I don't know. My life seems to be a falling apart as my beloved son is trying to murder me. Maybe you had a difficult time getting your family here in the morning, but I don't think it was that bad. Hopefully it wasn't. And then here he is, but your steadfast love is better than life. As long as I have this, I'm okay. I can lose the throne, but if I have this, I'm okay. I can lose my family, but if I have this, I'm okay. I can lose my job, my purpose, my reason for being. I can lose my great life's task, which is to bring, uh, to build the Lord's house, to build the temple, to renovate and restore this, uh, add musical, uh, musical instrumentation to the worship. I can lose all of these things, but if I have this, I'm okay. And that's the way we have to appraise, we have to work those things into our life. That's the only way we'll be free. We have to say, all right, if you really are that loving, then why am I so afraid? If you really are that gracious, why do I feel condemned? If you really are that merciful, why do I feel shame? If we're going to hallow his name, we have to first learn to desire. But we'll never truly desire until we properly appraise. But then once we desire, there's an experience. It's not just a longing for something. There's an actual encounter. And look how he encounters the Lord. And this really is the, the driving heartbeat of real prayer. Like if you really want to summarize what does it mean to hallow his name, it's summed up with those words in just one, two, three. It's my God. I seek you. I thirst for you. I desire you. See, in one sense, prayer that's just confession means we've, we're seeking, really seeking forgiveness. Or prayer that's just petition is because we want something. But prayer that's just praise means we just want God. Just you. You know, one of the things we, uh, we like around our house are kind of all the 17th century, like, British television shows and books and things like that. And uh, one of the fascinating things to me is how, like, every Jane Austen book, well, there were six books and then, of course, all the spinoff movies, you know, they just have basically one plot tension, and that's who's going to marry who. And... Um, 
And it's kind of an interesting time because they're actually living in the time of the fracturing between traditional cultures and modern cultures. So in traditional cultures, your primary allegiance was to your family, your group. You had to be true to them, your station and place in life. Modern cultures are individualistic cultures. Your primary allegiance is to yourself, your feelings and your desires. And you can kind of see that tension in so many of her stories. And uh, it's kind of about like who's going who's gonna to marry who. And just um, one of the things that kind of, I chuckle at, like when we watch Pride and Prejudice or you read the book and, you know, Elizabeth Bennett's one of the great heroines in all of literature. But there, it is interesting how she, if you don't know the story, there's a man named Mr. Darcy who expresses kind of his love and affection for her and part of the pride and, and prejudice is... Uh, she's so prejudiced uh, against him and he's so proud she kind of rebuffs him but then once uh, she goes to his house at Pemberley and actually sees how rich he really is there's a strange turn I mean just something softened when she saw just how rich he actually is and it's always intriguing it's like hmm how great of a love story is this because, I mean, could you imagine, like, the first time he proposes marriage to him and she shuts him down, and then the second time he does it, and, like, the Kira Knightley version, they have this overly dramatic kind of scene that's not really in the book, but there's, you know, the actor is like, you have bewitched me, body and soul, and I never want to be a day without you or something. And then she's like, oh, then they get married, and they're, you know, sipping tea on this blanket with fireworks, which didn't exist then. And, um... <laughs> And could you imagine, like, if she just paused during that second proposal and was like, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I've been thinking a lot about it. And there is this amazing bonnet at Bonnie Bufu's Bonnet Bonanza. And I started thinking, like, if, I, if we get married, I could have that. And, I mean, I, you know, I knew you were a fit guy, but it wasn't until I saw you swimming down the lake. I was like, whoa, Mr. Darcy, you devil. You're, hmm. And then I started realizing, man, think about all the doors. He could just open up for me in my life. I'll never get to meet the Duchess of Huntington until I'm in. And then, like, somehow that would even more, like, kill the actual love story. It's like, I don't actually love you. I just love the things you're going to give me or what I could get from you. And the whole driving heartbeat of real prayer and praise, this is why this is the first petition. Because at some point there has to be a shift from I love God for what he gives me to I love God for who he is. I want you, your name, you, my soul thirsts for you. Hallowed be your name. And even if my name or all these other names get lost into the oblivion of time, my soul's desire is for your name. I love you for you. You know, the kids, one of the things they do is we have these funny things we put on the fridge, and it's like a Mother's Day or Father's Day that their teachers have them do. And it's like, you know, my daddy is great because, you know, he buys me ice cream. And, you know, that's funny for a five-year-old. But at some point, I hope that shifts, and they recognize other attributes of their father. Like, I hope at some point they'll say, well, why do I love my daddy? He buys me ice cream, and he created an environment where it was safe for me to thrive, where I felt that, like I was loved, and he was happy, and he was humble. And I, I write that down, and you give that to them when they're 25 so they can read. Because uh, that's the hope. 
And this is the hope here, that the, the transformation, if you're going to have your heart changed, there has to be a shift where God is desired for who he is, not what he gives. And then the way that then gets experienced is through the two things it gets expressed physically and musically, and then it gets worked into your mind through thinking. So there's kind of a, an, an, an emotive uh, expressing component, then a thinking component. Notice all of the language for uh, verse 3, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So there's this musical expression. You know, in one sense, it's not enough just to praise Jesus in your heart. He has to be praised publicly. And part of this is publicly in corporate settings where he's praised in the congregation with skillful music done well. There's a physicality to it. You know, in this world, lifting up your hands was a sign. That's how you prayed. So um, I kind of grew up in a culture where, you know, pray it's every head bowed, every head, you know, take off your hat, you do this. And uh, in this world, this is the way you prayed. Lift up your hands. This is words of prayer. But the praise is not complete until it's expressed. But it's expressed. But then there's also the element of thinking. Notice what David does in verse 6. When I remember you upon my bed and I meditate on you in the watches of the night. So here he is. He's forced to stay up all night. He's got to stay up and set guard to watch, to be one of the night watchmen, to watch, to see if the invading army is going to come. And he uses that time to meditate and to remember. He has to think He's doing what Psalm 1 has told him to do, that blessed is the man who doesn't walk this way, but who meditates day and night on the law of the Lord. In that law, he delights. That's his delight. He thinks. But that's how praise is, is connected to love, where it gets specific, goes into detail. Actually, you can see this in another romantic comedy. So this is the, rom the romantic comedy movie uh, review this morning. But the, the movie Groundhog Day. Uh, a little different than Pride and Prejudice, but you kind of get to the same place at the end. And one of the follies, you know, the, the Bill Murray has to figure out like what love really is. And kind of in the climactic scene, he's been trying all these things to win the girl. I can't remember her name. Anybody? What is it? Yeah, Andy McDowell's the, she's the actress, right? Rita, yeah, it's Rita. He's trying to win Rita's heart. He's doing all these things, and it's not really working. And finally, he, like, confesses his love, and she's, uh, she says, you don't love me. You don't even know me. And then his response as he looks at her says, you like boats, but not the ocean. You like a lake in the summer in the mountains. You're a sucker for French poetry and for rhinestones. You're very generous. You're kind to strangers and children. And when you stand in the snow, you look like an angel. He starts to actually articulate specifics. He's not just like, oh, yeah, mm, me likey, you, you beautiful, you hot. Uh, uh. <laughs> There's actually, he can articulate specifics about her that he actually loves. He's thought, he's thought about it. And that's what real praise generates and motivates. You begin to be able to name things and he can do that. He says, I've seen your power. I've seen your glory, your steadfast love, all of these things I know and I can name. And then notice the sensory language. The real experience is, is sensory. It's something you, you taste. My soul thirsts for you. I'll be satisfied with this rich food. You taste and see that the Lord is good. And really the only way you'll ever get free from your fears 
is to taste and see that he's good. The only way you'll ever get broken free from your addictions or the things that are plaguing you or the destructive patterns in your life that you can't feel like you can ever change is to taste and see. You experience. But notice what that experience then results in. It results in a rest, a trusting. There's a beautiful line that starts in verse 8. Notice, my soul clings to you for your right hand upholds me. And it's this image, I mean, just think about in one sense the kind of the comical nature of the image, because here's David kind of in his full manhood and maturity. Even though he's on the run, you think about who David is, there's few characters just in in history that are quite like this. I mean, a military genius kind of on the level of Caesar or Andrew the Great or Napoleon, and then a poet kind of almost on the level of Shakespeare. Oftentimes those two kind of people don't exist in the same person. And then yet here he is in verse 8 saying, my soul clings to you. And in your right hand, you uphold me. It's this image of a child just clinging to the parent and the parent holding them with their right hand. The right hand is symbolic. Always I'm sensitive when you hear the phrase right hand in the scriptures because my mom is a lefty and she always says it's hard being a lefty in a righty's world. And uh, she actually saw one of our kids was like writing with their left hand and she panicked and she's like, stop them now, break it. Don't let them grow up to be a lefty in a righty's world. So I apologize you lefties for this image, but the image of the right hand is the image of power. You know, they would, David would hold his shield in the left, and the right was his sword. It's the image of strength and power. And what it's saying is that he's, the Lord has me engulfed, and I'm safe like a child. I cling, he holds, and he can rest. And then notice what he then does. He, he turns and says, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword, and they shall be a portion for the jackals. The people who are attacking the Lord's anointed and trying to attack the Lord's king, uh, eventually justice will come. Eventually justice will be served. It doesn't appear like it's that way now, but eventually it will happen. And then there's this fascinating thing in verse 11. It says, but the king will rejoice in God. You know, who's the king? The king's David. Here in the wilderness, David's reminding himself of who he is. He's reasserting his identity. And so the only way David can have this experience of trust and rest is he had to have a powerful experience of how undeserved God's grace really is. This powerful experience of salvation is by grace and it's undeserved. You think about David's life at this moment, uh, you could say that many of the things that he was experiencing were his fault. You know, his life in some ways is spiraling down because of his fault. His life, his family is a mess, and we won't go into all his, his family baggage, but his family is a mess, and many of the things are his fault. But he's going to still experience, and he can still cling in verse 3 to that steadfast love. It's the steadfast love that can overcome my circumstances. It's the steadfast love that can overcome my fears. It's a steadfast love that can overcome my own failures. I'm here on the run, and it's my fault, but his love can overcome all of that. So how did David know that that's true? Or where can we go to feel or experience the same steadfast love? You know, here David is, just think about the setting, is here David, he's Israel's king who's on the run in the wilderness being driven there by 
the Lord's enemies. And can you think of anybody else in David's family who would ever also be the true king who, has, who gets sent into the wilderness on the run, in essence, from the Lord's enemies? And so here, you know, David had a hope that in the Lord's presence, what, what he saw the power and the glory is he saw the place where the sacrifice would happen, where the Lamb of God would be slain and the blood would cover his sins and then he would feast in the presence of the Lord. What was central was the sacrifice that brought his, his atonement and he looked to that. But here for us, we have a better place that we can look to. We can look to David's greater son who was also sent in the wilderness. And even though David felt abandoned by the Lord, he wasn't. But then his greater son got sent into the wilderness and he felt abandoned and was because he received the abandonment that David deserved. He received the abandonment that you deserve. He received the abandonment I deserve so that David wouldn't have to, so that you wouldn't have to. So that I wouldn't have to. And now what Paul says for us, the way we can experience and praise that same powerful name that David just had a hint and a shadow of, we can see it in its full light. And like in Philippians 2, he tells uh, the people there, he, he says, have this mind in you which is yours in Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of sinful men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So at the cross and in the resurrection, he is given a name. So the reason why we want to hallow that name is because in that name is the only place that we can find life. It's the only place we can find hope. It's the only name under heaven and on the earth where we can be saved. It's the only name where our sins can be forgiven. And then he sent his apostles out in the world to perform miracles in that name, to offer forgiveness in that name. And now where two or three are gathered in that name, we can encounter him. So it's the name that we praise, and it's the name that we want to be our first priority. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the grace of your gospel to send your son to renew and refresh us. We pray and we ask that you would help us to be people that above all else, we love your name and we seek to honor your name. And even if there's 10,000 things in life we don't have or don't experience, help us to never feel like we've missed something as long as we've exalted and experienced the power of your name. And even if we do have 10,000 uh, things that we, 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 we receive all that our heart desires, help us to know that all those things are good gifts from a good God's hand and help us to praise your name through and for them. So I pray for everyone here this morning. Maybe for anyone who's come in and they recognize that all week they've been living uh, to try and lift up somebody else's name. Maybe it's their own name or the name of their company or the name of um, something else. We pray that you would help free them from that. We ask that you would liberate us so we'd be free to love your name, to honor your name, and to exalt your name in all things. And this we ask in Christ's holy name.